had before me the program. Unfortunately, I've reached that stage in my life where I have multiple sets of glasses uh, to manage different distances you wish to see. But the one distance I have yet to conquer is where I stand between myself and this document that sits in front of me. So this may result in uh, a number of these uh, pronunciations that may seem numerous to you. I hope you'll bear with me uh, if that be the case. Uh, our first uh, speaker, uh, who will speak for about 20 minutes, is Professor Paul Morris Rose of Pennsylvania State University. He will talk about Muhammad and the Jews of Medina and Kaibab in modern Islamic anti-Semitic anti mentalities, a, a subject of uh, compelling interest and much difficulty. Uh, I think what we're going to do is that we're going to allow for five minutes of discussion or questioning after each of these papers, and should time permit uh, afterwards, then we can address questions to all of the speakers. So, with uh, your permission, please go. Thank you. Thank you, Jack. I'm going to go with Jacob. Um, I mean, this is a very quick 20 minute talk, and I need to cover some very complex topics rather superficially. Um, just to give you a taste of what I think are some new possible ways of attacking anti Semitism, or the analysis of anti Semitism, I should say. Um, the first section is on a general method applied to the history of anti-Semitism. The second is a special method for dealing with a very difficult problem of ascertaining how much we really do know about Mohammed's relations with the Jews of the city of Medina, whom he eventually expelled, subdued from the city, and then attacked in their last fortress at a series of citadels at the oasis of Haibar. Um, this is an extremely complex subject among specialists, like friend Professor Lazar, who's an Islamist, is, is, Islamicist, I should say. Um, the third part of the, the, the talk is to do with the emotional impact of, of, and survival of the traditional Muslim narratives about Muhammad and the Jews of Medina and how the, these tendencies, these emotions, these fantasies emerge in current uh, political rhetoric and discourse in Islam. Um, first of all, the, the general method I'll skate over very quickly. Um, one of the, the central problems, philosophically speaking, in the history of antisemitism is, do we have something called antisemitism with a capital A, eternal antisemitism, or do we have rather a series of historically unique conditioned antisemitisms, which is I'm the only person to use this term as far as I know, it hasn't caught on. Um, but this is the way I would differentiate. What is the relationship of antisemitism, universal, unchanging, transcending all societies, and the particular historical expressions, cultural expressions in a given society, whether it's German society, which I'm most acquainted with in the past, or whether it's Islamic societies, Arab societies in the Middle East, ancient and modern. Um, I'm really, uh, to develop this, um, I've developed a twofold method. Uh, it's working for the last 20 years and it's produced a monster book which keeps on being a bridge from 2 million words now, it's 440,000. Eventually it's supposed to come out, but it depends on other words. The twofold method is this. Um, first of all, how do particular Anti 
particular cultures historically, geographically, in terms of time? How do particular cultures express the anti-Semitism? What's unique to each expression of the anti-Semitism? Those are the anti-Semitism of the whole range of them. French, German, modern, Christian, Islamic, Buddhist, Bible, Japanese, Jewish, you name it. It's a whole range of them, infinitely limited. But I think that each one is specifically rooted in its own culture. And we have to understand the culture first, as historians, from my point of view, before we can understand the anti-Semitism of what drives it, how it operates, why it's there at all. Um, the second um, pillar of the method I'm using is emotion, which is very discredited among my fellow professional historians as a way of investigating any historical subject. Um, I'm not interested at all, to be honest, in superficial ideologies, ideations of anti-Semitism, religious expressions of anti-Semitism, all this stuff, Marxist, fascist, racist, uh, secular. And these are all just variations of theme. These are anti-Semitisms, as it were. Uh, what really interests me is the emotion driving these specific expressions, these made-up ideas. In other words, in the old Marxist jargon, we've got the superstructure of anti-Semitic ideologies and explanations, justifications, and then we have what's really driving it underneath, from my point of view, the emotions, not the economy, primarily as a Marx, of course. Um, take Matthew 27, crucifixion narrative, for example. Here we have the question, the illustration, why can two Christians read Matthew 27? One Christian comes away not the least animated against the Jews, the other person, probably not even a Christian, maybe a Shinto or Japanese, so part of the world, no contact with Christianity. Why does the other person read this religious narrative, which means nothing to them, and come away convinced and disseminate, or started as the beginnings of the making of the makings of the that disseminate? And I think you have an emotional disposition here, a whole personality series of traits, which is present in one individual, not another. Now, the only people to have really looked at this are, of course, the authors of the authoritarian personality, one of the most neglected texts. I don't subscribe to any of the sociological views of Horkheimer and Dorn and so on um, in, in the authoritarian personality. But it is a tremendous treasure trove of interviews, psychological interviews, explaining the nature of particular anti-Semitic personalities and the mental, their mental structures, their relative of sensibility, mentality, feeling, and so forth. The, the rational explanations are absolutely pointless. There's no point in looking at rational explanations here. You must go straight for the emotions. Um, you can see, maybe, I've explained this at all coherently, there are some possibilities that result. First of all, um, the emotional profile supplies the basis of eternal antisemitism, universal antisemitism. It's not present in everyone, just as people fall into different personality types. So that's an immediate point. It's universal, but it doesn't mean everyone has it. You can difference that. Um, a second point is the emotions help us to understand the nature of the specific national, for example, anti-Semitism. I mean, in case of point is, of course, obviously German anti-Semitism, which is more known as a debated point. And from the point of view of today, Islamic anti-Semitism, Arab anti-Semitism. If you look at those cultures, and you see that the, what you might call the uh, deep anthropological cultures in those societies, then you begin to characterize, I mean, I'm speaking very generally here, certain cultures as a hysterical and a clinical sense almost. 
certain as well-balanced, others as open to compromise, and, and so on and so forth. Some were preoccupied with the concept of honor, others with treachery, uh, insecurity, fear, violence. Each society has its own deep society, culture, which anthropologists are very well aware of. Um, so once you look at the whole social culture, I'm not talking about national character here, which is an old discredited, simplistic notion, it's something much more complicated. It's an environment we're dealing with, it's not a simple national series of institutions or something like that. So you can see how um, these two methods, I think, can be very fruitful. Um, what I'm doing then is to try and get beyond the symbolical, simple, descriptive narrative histories of anti-Semitism that dominate the field right to this very moment. People interested in the superficial ideas and all the rest. I want to get to the real emotional driving forces and why they are expressed in certain idea patterns. Um, in the case of Islam, I'm going to summarize that very quickly. Um, I mean, the culture, and here you can accuse them of being a racist or whatever it is, which doesn't matter to me because it's a non-category as far as I'm concerned. Um, in the Islamic case, we have clear expressions of rampant emotion. And if you saw Menachem's clips this morning, which are quite shattering in their cumulative effect, you'll know what I mean. You feel it. If you put your mind back to this morning, it's showing those clips. I mean, this is a series of completely jumbled, chaotic, contradictory, anti-Semitic cliches, whether they're Christian or blood libel, or whether they're Islamic, or whether they're secular or nationalistic, or whatever. Um, idiotic in terms of rational debate and discourse and analysis. But they have a cumulative effect because they flow together seamlessly because they are expressions of pure emotion. It's pure fluidity of emotion that's driving them. And that's what we're looking at today to some degree. Um, going on now to the specific problem method of Muhammad and the Jews, I'm not going to, if you want to read the details of the early Muslim sources, you can look at the other collection by old Andrew Boston, Legacy of Islamic Antisemitism. Um, read them for yourself, are quite hair-raising. The problem there, of course, with Boston's material, from a professional historian's viewpoint, is that he doesn't, isn't able to discriminate between the nature of each source and how to control it. I mean, a source can say anything, the point is whether it's the truth or not, the historical truth. How to recover the historical kernel from these very early Islamic sources is a big problem among professional Islamic historians. Um, I'll just sum it up very briefly for you. I mean, basically, we know in at least 100 years that there are big problems with the collections of sayings of the prophet. And one of those we read about the swans, and one about the stones in the trees hiding the Jews, and so forth. It's a big crux of debate how authentic this is. It wasn't really said by Muhammad. And we know that a lot of these hadith, as they're called, are forged. However, in recent years, there's been a tendency to separate legal and theological sayings of the prophet historical ones, and I think most mainstream historians are now inclined to accept the historical ones as more authentic. Another big problem is what's called the Sirah, the first biographies of the prophet, histories of the prophet, which they from the 18th century, from the 8th century, well, 150 years after Muhammad, you know what time does to historical memory, and so on. And here is a big debate. The revisionist historians, say Patricia Crowe, others like that, argue as a circularity problem here, that we can't know any of these stories are true at all. In fact, she regards them as 
parts of a storytelling tradition. She thinks they grew up, these accounts of the prophets' relations with Jews, in order to explicate various very obscure verses in the Quran. Then, with the Quran itself, we have a problem of controlling the sources because we don't know the exact precise datings of a lot of the verses, whether they're authentic or not, and this is a matter of intense um, disputation right now between the schools and historians that barely is now. So this is a circularity problem. We can't use the Quran to control biographical material, the stories. We can't use the stories to control the Quran, it's circular. What my method is, is to take the earliest agreed authentic text of Islam, except for possibly that's the Quran, and use this to control in a triangulated way the Quran and the biographical material of Sirah. Uh, this is a very complex operation. Uh, why it's worth pursuing, it hasn't been done so far, to my knowledge by any serious historian, is because the um, well, why it hasn't been done basically is no one's thought of it. But apart from that, um, let, me, let me stop rephrase this. According to Patricia Crow, she cites what's called the Constitution of Medina, dated from possibly 621, 622 AD, which is concluded, a series of treaties concluded by Muhammad with the Arab tribes and the Jewish tribes of Medina. She cites this as undeniably authentic, but she has never ever analyzed it in her writings. And this seems to be an amazing omission for a series of revisionist historian to admit the Jewish problem in Muhammad when the earliest text we have is allegedly a Jewish text that of treaties with Muhammad. But anyway, even the revisionists admit it's authentic. Um, once we have that, we can use as I said, use it triangulatingly and use various techniques to establish, to control the Quran and the early biographical material. And this is what I've done in this book, I did a new book I just finished finishing. Uh, it's, it's very complex and it's going to not convince many people, certainly not all, but I think it's an exercise worth doing. Um, the basic facts, again, just to resume very quickly, are that Muhammad comes to, he's invited to Medina as a sort of conciliator or something like this to stop tribal warfare. It's a Jewish city founded by the Jews, still over half the population. Jewish in 621, 622. The Jews are aligned with various rival Arab tribes and clans and fight on their behalf. Um, the constitution itself is not a single document. It's portrayed by the earliest writer on Muhammad as being a treaty with the Jews, but it's not. It only includes the Jews. It's basically a, a series of layers of seven or eight treaties, some of them very fragmentary, concluded over Muhammad's time from Medina. And then, of course, what I try to do is relate these individual treaties to particular biographical encounters with the Jewish tribes described by the other biographers. Um, I'm not going to go on any further here, except to say that the main tribes in Adam are exiled from uh, Medina to the oasis of Haibar, where they have huge date palm estates. Date palms are a major source of sugar and so forth at this point basis of the economy of the Arabian Peninsula. And eventually, Muhammad turns against the Jews of Kaibar unexpectedly and destroys them, or forces them to surrender on conditions of paying tribute um, after a series of sieges lasting a few weeks. 
And we'd already subjected the Jewish tribe to the Medina itself by attacking their armed fortresses. And by the way, many ruins of these fortresses in Medina and Haibas are still standing. They've never been excavated. The inscriptions have never been looked at. And of course, it's difficult to get to them if you're a Muslim. But that's a field of research that desperately needs opening up in the logical aspect. Um, I'm going to go on to now emotions underlying these narratives. There are two basic emotions. One is humiliation, the need to humiliate others, especially the Jews. And secondly, the fear of treachery. Um, you find that these emotions right through the Quran, right through the other traditions, the biographical literature, everything to the present day. Um, when Maimonides in 1172 says, no nation has ever been so eager to humiliate and degrade us, he's actually quoting from the Quran, what the Quran scriptures are about to do with the Jews. People dismiss Maimonides as not knowing anything about Europe, but that's a misconception, I think, for reasons I won't go into here. Finally, how does this, all this stuff, figure in contemporary Islamic culture, where the past lives continually in the present, you might say? Um, we find in the memory clips it coming out again and again um, in the form of fantasies, fantasies of murder, extermination, destruction, defeat of the Jews. Um, Cooper, Jane Cooper was one of the major um, sort of popularizers of this approach in the 1950s and early 60s until his death. And his essay on, famous essay on our struggle with the Jews starts off in the very first sentence the Jews were the first enemies of the Prophet and they remain so to the present day. They are still the same Jews forever. Never. There is no past, there is no present. It's just a continuum of Jews versus Islam. Um, you find also in Ramadan, Ramadan's writings infinitely more subtly and more sophisticatedly expressed, of course. But when it comes to the massacre of the Khorizan tribe, for example, where unprecedentedly 600 Jews are beheaded in one day in public in Medina by uh, Mohammed, um, you find Ramadan suddenly become reticent about the details. He skates over this. He doesn't want to say what, is, what the real way of dealing with Quranic things by Jews should be. Um, children's indoctrination nowadays in Arabic television is, is all over the place. Let me just read very quickly now. I'll try to bring this to an end. Um, all the Jews, this is a children's Quranic instruction program. All the Jews gathered in Kaiba. Where did they gather their children? It's just like today, within the center of command of the Jews is where? It's Palestine now, which they call Israel there in Palestine. Praise be, it's history repeating itself. Now, when the Jews' wall of separation, West Bank fence, is completed, the army of Allah. Muhammad will return. That's why we always say to them, Haiba, Haiba, O oh Jews, the army of Muhammad will return. It's a children's one. If we go on to the grown-ups material, that's quite interesting. Um, uh, one, last year, as a Imam, one Egyptian uh, Imam, uh, he says it's a whole lecture on Haibar, the destruction of the final Jewish holdout. On he says, the Jews of Haibar are a replica of the state of Israel in 2009 in terms of the terrifying economy that sucked the blood of the Arabs. Military armaments, superiority over the whole region, settlements that fall the state, fortifications, and so on. And then he goes on to say, 1967, 1967, when the Jews occupied Palestine and Jerusalem and were celebrating their victory, Moshe and Dayan cried, this is our revenge for Haibar. How come Haibar remains sealed in their Jewish hearts for 1400 years? 
of course, is not the Jewish heart. The obsession of high bars is the Muslim heart. Um, soon the cries of Allah Akbar will be sounded at the gates of Jerusalem and at the gates of Al-Aqsa Mosque, the cries of Haibar Haibar. Finally, I want to mention very quickly the Oxford University fiasco in February this year, when the Deputy Israeli Foreign Minister um, was menaced by an Arab student who yelled out, allegedly, about some people standing around it, al which means slaughter the Jews. However, when this became a matter of press interest, he said, I, I was misheard. I actually said, Haiba, Haiba, which means, you know, Haiba, Haiba, all Jews were coming. Um, he said, I'm not in favor of anti-Semitism, I'm against anti-Semitism, as are we all, of course. And he said, However, I have taken the precaution of writing to all my Jewish friends to assure them that there was no question of any political meaning here. Well, of course, every Muslim in the world knows, basically, that there is a political meaning when you shout Haiba Haiba. The people who, um, who you can see in the videos, the Hezbollah people in Lebanon and the Hamas people in Gaza, have a special chant about Haiba uh, Haiba, and it's dinned out for 20 minutes non-stop, you see marching in the armaments, the rifle um, developed by uh, the Iranians, the assault rifles called the Haibar rifle, and so on and so forth. So just because the Jews don't remember Haibar, there's certainly no reason that the Muslims, with the best emotional reasons, will always remember it. Sorry.
usefulness used to be a perfectly respectable term for people who do the kinds of things that I do and other people do. Before it was hijacked and something rather different, so now we're called Islamicists, you see, and in 10 years from now will probably be something else uh, in the course of time. Now, our uh, second speaker is Dr. Neil Kressel of William Patterson University, who's going to talk about the demonization of Jews as pigs and apes, theological roots, history, extent, and contemporary implications. Uh, some of this we already heard today, so we'll be prepared for your remarks. This is obviously for everybody here a very unusual audience compared to who most of us usually deal with. And for me, most of the people who I deal with don't know that there is such a thing as Islam, um, Islamic anti-Semitism. And they um, really think that there's an Arab-Israeli conflict and that primarily in the minds of a lot of them, and I'm, um, I teach at a state college in New Jersey, a lot of them are thinking of it as, as not much more than a traditional conflict where two sides are fighting against each other and they don't like each other. And that's, that's the level of, um, of specificity and of knowledge, of the detail of knowledge that they have. So um, the, the paper that I'm going to be presenting to you today is actually a piece of a, uh, a book that I'm working on. It's a small section of the book that I'm working on, which is dealing with the um, the way that people seem to avoid and ignore and are ignorant about Muslim anti-Semitism, and obviously this is entirely the wrong um, audience for that because you're all at this conference. The second way that my approach differs, though, aside from this kind of speaking to a general audience that really does not know too much about this rather than speaking too um, to experts, the second way is that my background is in social psychology. I have a doctorate in social psychology. I've written a book on the psycho psychology of religious extremism. I did another book on the social psychology of genocide. I've done other social psychological approaches. And that for me, this whole issue of, of how history becomes relevant in the present is really a social psychological question. It's a question not of what happened in the seventh century or um, what happened in the 19th 40s, but rather, how do the things that happened then become important for contemporary consciousness? In other words, in what ways are these historical events, for, for example, what Muhammad did and what the Jews, as far as I can tell um, from what I've been reading, we don't know too much about the Jews who were living in Arabia before uh, Muhammad got there. And so we really have very little sense of whether we would like these people, not like these people. The actual historical reality, whether they did something wrong, didn't do something wrong, is more or less irrelevant. But what is relevant is the way that the history has been passed down, and then the way that somehow it is communicated to, um, to masses, and the way that it becomes psychologically relevant, impels people to action, it affects their other attitudes. So that's really the general approach. But the specific paper I'm going to focus on, though, is this issue of pigs and apes. And that um, if, you, um, if you want to make the, the case right off the bat that there's a problem of anti-Semitism that goes beyond just the Arab-Israeli conflict, I think that the notion of pigs and apes and the way and some of the quotations about them are a very good way to make that point. Now, I know I'm supposed to push a button here to get my uh, 
thing going, but I can't find the button. The screen went away. So if this works, I'll do it, otherwise I can go on.
And to that, you can at least go back 10 years, or you can go back, you know, certainly if there are historical reasons in, in recent history. But the, the real question is, um, how far back do you have to go in history to find the sources of this anti-Semitism? And that, um, I have here a, let's see if I have one. Yeah. This is a, a, a sermon that was, a lot of these come from those same memory things that everybody else sees. But anyway, it says, um, this is a, um, a Friday afternoon sermon. It says, in the protocols, the Jews um, included their plan. They go on and it just talks all about the stuff from the protocols of the elders of Zion. And you'll see this is very classically um, lifted from the, the, um, the protocol mentality. Um, but, but then the second thing that this speaker said, he's really citing his sources. He's saying, source number one is the protocol. Source number two, we Muslims know best the nature of the Jews because the Quran has informed us about this and because the pure Sunnah of the Prophet Muhammad has devoted much space to informing Muslims about the Jews and their hostility to Islam and its prophets. So certainly, if you look at the sources that this guy is citing, he's giving you his footnotes. Now, is he giving you the right footnotes? He's giving you footnotes, but are these really the sources? Is this really where it comes from? Well, um, I'll, I'm going to come to that in a second, but I, I do want to spend just another moment talking about how widespread this pigs and apes thing has come has become. One thing is that. Um, 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 and he went to London 
for an opening of a mosque, again, you've got all the papers saying what a, what a moderate he was calling for cooperation. And um, a year earlier, he had, um, he had said, um, read history and you will understand that the Jews of yesterday are the evil forefathers of the even more evil Jews of today. Infidels, falsifiers of words, calf worshippers, it's interesting, um, prophet murderers, deniers of prophecies, the scum of the human race, accursed by Allah, who turned them into apes and caves. Well, I'm not going to go on with the more extreme guys. I have Al-Qaeda guys, I have um, Hassan Nasrallah who uses it. Um, you really find um, that um, Al-Zawari uses it. You can find it all over the place. Um, you also find that this is, um, that when they, when they draw pictures of Netanyahu, or of, of Sharon in the past, they used pig snaps. So it shows up visually as well. Um, you've all, you saw the, um, the little girl, in the, the three and a half year old girl who sang Jews for Pigs and Apes. And then um, they did a claymation special. I had to look up what claymation was. It's a type of clay animation where you make little clay figures and they walk around. But anyway, the Jews were turned into pigs and apes in that, and that was on um, Almanar TV. Um, they even found a book in England at a school that was funded by um, the Saudis where one of the textbooks was teaching that the Jews were pigs and apes in England. And then when they, they told the uh, principal of the school about this, she said, well, um, we, we don't use that particular part, but we still want to keep the book because other chapters are good. And we don't want to waste the book, which is sort of an interesting idea, because you can imagine someone making the same argument in the United States about, you know, well, there's one line in here which says something very racist about blacks, but we won't teach that, but the rest of the book is good. Uh, anyway, they put pressure on her, and she finally pulled it back. So where, um, where does this come from? Well, if you, um, if you go to moderate Muslims, they will give you a, an answer which sounds to me quite reasonable. And I think if I were a Muslim, I would, I would buy this and I would see nothing wrong with it. If you read the actual, actually what happened, it's just some Jews who didn't follow the Sabbath. And what they specifically did was it had to do with fishing. And the, apparently God had set up a test for the Jews. And the test was that, that fish would not be around when they were trying to fish on all different days. But instead what would happen is on Shabbat the fish would come and then if the Jews went to fish for it, they'd be breaking the Sabbath. And there are a lot of different variations on this. One is that one guy dug like a, a channel, and so the fish would swim through the channel, and then he would trap them on Shabbat, and then the next day, he would pick them out and cook them. And so he wasn't really catching them, he thought. Well, anyway, what happened is he, that he, um, that you, there's a lot of different versions of these things. I mean, you really do have to go back to the, history, and I'm not the guy to do it, but if you read through um, the different early commentators, one person says one way of doing it, one person another, and they all generally, though, agree that it was some Jews, not all Jews, and that they were turned because they um, violated their own Sabbath rule. I think it's given how little we know about um, that period, and just trying to take a guess about where this story came from, I wouldn't find it implausible that there was a Jewish story like that, a local Jewish tradition that just didn't survive. There's nothing, in other words, in, in those days, um, turning people into animals was not such a weird thing. And if you um, if you look back, Ilsa Lichtenstein, I guess is the 
say the name, but anyway, she um, um, did some did some very interesting research where she looked at well, why pigs and apes? And apparently, if you look at different cultures around that time, um, pigs, of course, we know Muslims don't eat, and they were looked on as detested. But apes, in particular, there's a long history of how the um, apes were viewed as demonic and as, as very, very evil animals. So it was no accident that it was turned into pigs and apes, but the message may well have been simply that um, we turn um, people who violate religious laws into, um, into um, you know, pigs and apes. Bad things happen to them, so you shouldn't do bad things. And the message could have been intended for Muslims. And it's also more generally saying that this new body of religious law is superior to the old body. And the reason that it is superior is because this old body had been corrupted. And so there's an important idea of presenting the Jews as somehow uh, following a corrupt body of religious law that they've gone off in the wrong direction. And so, um, so that means, so anyway, you could take the modern message as, well, um, it's not such a bad thing. It's just giving a moral message here, and it has nothing to do with contemporary Jews. There's also the idea of whether these Jews actually, whether, whether these apes and pigs reproduce. The basic argument is that the most common view is that they did not reproduce. There's also an argument of whether if they did reproduce, are all the apes and pigs now descended from those? And there was, a, um, I guess it's a Syrian um, minister of some sort who was arguing that that all of contemporary pigs are descended from Jews, and that is precisely why Muslims aren't supposed to be eating them. Um, so I'm running out of time here. I do want to make a few um, concluding points. Let me just click ahead here. Um, that um, the moderate reading that um, that the Quran does not say that all Jews are apes and pigs, and that um, there are good things in the Quran that counterbalance this. But of course, there is also evidence for a, a, an unpleasant reading, and that is that there's a whole lot of other traditions in the Quran that you could pull out and show that the Jews are being painted in a very negative sense. And if you look at some contemporary people who use this pigs and apes idea, they don't buy it on theological grounds. They don't say that these the Jews today are pigs and apes. They simply say they're like their ancestors who were turned into them, and therefore we're using the term figuratively rather than um, literally. Um, Let's see, the, um, really almost out of time. Okay, let me just finish up very quickly. Um, this idea of thinking of people as animals. We, in, so, in the social psychology of genocide, that is a precursor to genocide. That's one of the things that's one of the very clear, this dehumanization and demonization are the first steps that are almost always taken towards people before you kill them. And so this is, should not be taken lightly. This is not like some bad nickname, but rather for people who use it, it's a type of dehumanization. And then more generally, this, um, I just want to make one quick point about the, um, the whole argument about the origins of Islamic anti-Semitism, how much should be attributed to the distant past, how much to the recent past, how much is even more contemporary than that that the historical foundation, the, the, the validity of the, histor the historical roots of a prejudice 
aren't what accounts for its intensity or its resilience. So an anti-Semitism that it was, if, if you take the argument that Islamic history was a very uh, fine place for Jews for, um, for many centuries, that does not mean that it somehow is less intense or less embedded in the culture today. The embeddedness of a belief in a culture is a social psychological function, not a historical function. It doesn't matter what happened in 1400. What matters is how much is it tied into your current socialization practices, how much is it tied into your, um, your contemporary um, value system, how many people in your culture buy it, how do leaders react to it. Those are the sorts of things that determine the intensity of a belief and not the question of whether a culture was actually historically um, um, bigoted during those centuries. And I say this because this pigs and apes language that we hear right now, we, um, we would not have heard this um, 200 years ago, 300 years ago, 400 years ago, 500 years ago. You'd see it, you could find it. But the frequency and the intensity of use of this language is very much a contemporary phenomenon, even though its roots are very far in the distant past. We still want two questions. Sure. Okay. I'm going to just uh, ask about the context and the context of you mentioned about the peace and AIDS. And how would that um, relate to the current movement of the Islamic leaders and scholars, for example, um, with the articles of the common word? The common word in the New York Times, uh, they come together and say that we need okay. to be in the <coughs> Okay, well, I think that the, the best is, if I understand the question, would I, is that you hear a lot of um, a lot of talk about a common world, you're saying, and, and, common, and a common word. word, a common religious tradition, you mean? Or what, um, a common explain? word which emphasizes on loving God and loving our neighbors. Okay. Yeah. Well, I think that you would have to make quite a stretch to say that the people who are making all those quotes that I gave in the beginning, the contemporary leaders, uh, believe in, in that very deeply, although I certainly don't want to argue that there, I give all sorts of quotes in my argument of Muslims who I think are sincere in their faith and who are not anti-Semitic. And so I don't think that there's anything in this religious tradition any more than in the Jewish religious tradition or the Christian religious tradition that necessitates someone to nowadays be, um, be extremist. And I think that the, it's a matter of how you interpret your sacred works. All of the sacred works are tarnished. It's a question of how you interpret it. And unfortunately, we're not hearing a lot of very positive um, um, interpretations of, of this stuff. Yes, one last well, question. This is uh, exactly what I was going to ask you. Uh, we have Muslim speakers at my organization, and uh, they claim to be moderate Muslims, and they claim that uh, Muslim is a peaceful religion. And uh, when there are uh, arguments about it, they say, well, that's because people interpret the Quran wrong. It's not really in the Quran. It's how they interpret it. What, what do you say to that? Well, I, I think that the, the question of who counts as a moderate is a very critical question. And just 
There are moderates and there are moderates. However, there are, um, it is possible for somebody, there aren't many, but it's possible for somebody to say that I follow Islam, and this is what this says in the Quran that certain Jews were made into pigs and apes, and I say that that, that, that type of punishment was because they didn't follow their own laws. It doesn't apply to Jews today. I think these guys who say all those crazy things um, that you read in memory are crazy, and I, I have no, I'm, I'm not siding with them, and I make a clear distinction that they, they are not following my religion, and they're doing it wrong. And I think if somebody says that, and they say that sincerely, then you take them at their word. The problem is that some people try to simply deny that all this is going on, and that, and that, that type of moderate who says, well, Muslims really don't do any of this, and they talk more generally about Islam, and they don't make the distinction, um, they're lying. Yes. I think one of the concepts that I'm reading about is that in Islam, uh, the historical time is different than the Western world. Essentially, what you have is a uh, what took place in the past and what's taking place in the present is united in terms of a metaphor that persists over time. That time really is not progressive; it is uh, eternal, and it's metaphysical time. Does this fit in with the idea, essentially, uh, of uh, that what the Quran says uh, is not just limited in that time, but as a persistent metaphysical truth? Oh, well, that's interesting. And I, and I think that, obviously, in Islam, the, there's not the same break with the religious scripture that you see in, in some of the other religions that have made their peace more with the Enlightenment. But I, would, I think it's a little general. I mean, I think that to, to make a speculation about how people perceive time without studying them and all that, I'd, I'd be careful. Well, Stanley did that many years ago. Okay, just, uh, let, me, let, let me just reinforce your point by saying, having written the book on that subject, I think you're absolutely right. <laughs> <laughs> However, Moving right along, uh, we have the last of these papers by the, uh, Dr. David Sokol. Uh, is this a paper? Or we do it to the video. Oh, so everybody has to vacate. You can sit there. Okay. okay. On, on the grand list of tools. Yes. Thank you. Um, yeah, well, I'll stick to the time because the video is exactly 20 minutes. So. But I could go over in my introduction. No. I've, um, then the thing that I wanted to say to introduce it is that, not scientifically, but if I have a stack of books on books that were published by the Mufti, I think about one book a decade was published on the Mufti until 2001. And after 2001, I have a stack this high at all. And it's become a really relevant story. I don't know how many of you have read the Stake Larson books, the, these Scott, the Swedish mystery, the girl with the dragon tattoo. Well, the third one is called The Girl Kicked Over the Hornet's Nest. And I think Professor Herf and maybe Professor Kinsel are the men who kicked over the hornet's nest in a way by discovering these Kirk uh, translations of Mufti's broadcasts. Um, it really uh, moved me to reevaluate the whole situation of what's going on here and uh, so what I do is I spend a lot of time drawing and doing art and a lot of time thinking and writing about anti-semitism and so I put them together 
in this uh, video with the idea not to dumb it down. It's only 20 minutes. It's not a dumbed down version, it's an introduction. And it's packed full of things. So there, we just got to admit there are a lot of people who aren't going to read uh, Lethal Obsession. <laughs> it's it's uh, 4,000 words. It's, it's a great book. But some people got to know the story, but they're not going to read scholarly academic books. So my, my hope is that people learn about the origins of, of Islamic genocide and anti-Semitism. And that they, they see this, and a lot of people see this, students, artists, general public see this, and they're moved to read and understand further about this, this terrible history. So that's the backstory. And could you turn this on? Because it's just a black screen. <laughs> Jewish women and children were not spared in the pogroms he led. 
The Quran teaches that the people of the book, Jews and Christians, are to be protected by Muslims as long as they follow the rules. Husseini convinced many Arabs in Palestine that the Dhimmis, as these non-Muslims were known, were breaking the laws of Mohammed and needed to be destroyed. After this series of riots, the British banned Husseini and he fled to Syria with his thugs. A few months later, he was allowed to return with no consequences. Ironically, it was a British Jew, Sir Herbert Samuel, who appointed Husseini as Mufti and added the gratuitous prefix grand to make his title the Grand Mufti. It was certainly one of the grandest mistakes in history, a mistake that would lead to no good for Arab, Jew, or Christian. Samuel's action helped establish violence and tyranny in the Middle East for the next 100 years. One of the first acts of the Mufti was to have any of his citizens wearing the wrong hat shot left in the street as an example. The day before, he proclaimed that there was to be no more wearing the fez, the conical cap frequently worn. Only the kafia scarf was to be allowed. The more modern fez was thereafter out of fashion. Death was the fate of any Palestinian who openly disagreed with the Mufti. At this time, Hitler's biography, Mein Kampf, was translated into Arabic and becoming the bestseller, which it still is to this day. Hitler's star was rising in the Middle East. By the 1930s, moderates were becoming scarce in Palestine. The Mufti incited the Arab revolt in 1936, ostensibly to revolt against the British and Jews. His real motive was to kill all Palestinians who might have won in peace. Many more Arabs were killed over the three-year Arab revolt than Christians or Jews. It was in this period that youth groups learned the Hitler salute, which is still in use among terrorists in Palestine today. The appointment of Adolf Hitler as Chancellor of Germany in 1933 galvanized much of the Middle East. The Mufti immediately contacted the German Consul General to Jerusalem and offered his services. There were Muslim sects who considered Hitler a saint born on earth, as predicted in Islamic lore. The obvious obstacles to the collaboration between Hitler and Arabs was no deterrence to the Mufti. The Mufti had the foresight to see that these obstacles could be overcome, that an Islamic-Nazi alliance could be achieved. Hassan al-Banna was the founder of the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt. The Mufti led the Palestinian branch of the Muslim Brotherhood. The Muslim Brotherhood depended for its success on the development of hatred for Jews, the West, and cultural modernity. In the 1930s, Nazi representatives went to visit the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt. Adolf Eichmann and other Nazis helped the Muslim Brotherhood strategize their war on Jews and the West. Eichmann helped them set up spy networks and youth groups designed after Hitler Youth. In 1937, the British government of Palestine was stabbed to death on the steps of the Church of Nazareth in Palestine. Everyone knew that the Mufti was responsible for the murder, but before he was caught, he changed into Arabic women's clothing and slipped out of the country. 
1941, Winston Churchill ordered the Mufti captured dead or alive. The Mufti was now the one in Syria, Iraq, and Iran. It was protected by local governments and Axis powers. The Mufti spent 1937 through 1941 running and hiding in the Middle East. At the same time, he was building his base among jihadists, nationalists, and anti-Semites. Iran was the last country the Mufti took refuge in before fleeing to Germany. When he arrived in Tehran, the Jews fled like mice, smelling a cat. They knew wherever the Mufti went, but Romans were soon to follow. Iran had a very strong pro-Nazi population. In fact, the changing of the name from Persia to Iran is from the word Aryan, as in the master race. It was an attempt to curry favor with Hitler. the oil pipelines in Iran for the Nazis. His plans were interrupted by Churchill's devotion to stopping him. Iran began to lean toward Britain as an ally. Iran was no longer safe for the Mufti. In 1941, he fled off to Rome for a short visit with Mussolini. Years of hero worship, the Mufti got his dream come true, a sit-down with the Fuhrer himself. The Mufti was ready to make his pitch for a strong alliance between the Muslim world and Hitler. The Mufti promised to raise a Muslim Nazi army, help with sabotage and propaganda. Just as Hitler made genocidal anti-Semitism a requirement of Nazism, the Mufti made murdering Jews a requirement of Islam. It was at this meeting in 1941 that Hitler was recording his most explicit admission to his plan for the final solution. The Mufti was later to write in his memoirs that it was at this meeting that Hitler told him, the Jews are yours. The Mufti only requested that Hitler give him access to the scientific methods Hitler had invented to solve the Jewish problem. The Mufti also wrote in his memoirs our fundamental condition for cooperating with Germany was a free hand to eradicate every last Jew from Palestine and the Arab world. Did the Mufti know about the ovens? In a radio report he made in September 1944, admonishing the Europeans for not being strong enough in getting rid of the Jews, he said, Are you not able to overcome the Jews whose numbers do not exceed 11 million? It was common knowledge that before the war there were 17 million Jews in Europe. Using the number 11 million showed that he knew before anyone outside the Reich that 6 million were gone. He and his entourage were taken in by the French government and housed in a beautiful chateau. What the French called surveillance looked more like asylum. There were charges of war crimes against the Mufti, but no extradition was attempted. During a year in France, the Mufti got into the Nuremberg trials and saw in his French neighborhood mysterious men thought to be part of a violent Israeli group known as the Stern Gang. It was time for him to escape again. The Mufti was not the only one running. Nazis were leaving Germany through what was called the Rat Lines. A good number went to the Middle East. Many Nazis thought the Middle East would play a major role in the Fourth Reich. The 
Mufti would be an important liaison between the escaped Nazi and Middle Eastern governments who wanted their skills. Then it was announced in the British House of Commons by the Scottish Under Secretary of State in charge of foreign affairs, the Mufti is not a war criminal in the technical sense of the term, since he is not an enemy national or a person who served in the enemy forces. Behind the scenes maneuvering clearly resulted in appeasement. The Mufti disappeared from France in June 46. The Mufti shaved his beard, dyed his hair, put on a Western suit, took the passport given him by the future Prime Minister of Syria, and fled to Egypt. No one in the highest levels of Western government made any attempt to stop him. He did leave a thank you note to the French. He was welcomed as a hero in Egypt. Hassan al-Banab, the head of the Muslim Brotherhood, sent a threatening letter to the government of the United States. It was a threat of terrorism if the U.S. decided to go after the Mufti. The U.S. backed off. This might be considered the opening salvo of the Jihad War against the United States. When he returned to Egypt, you know the Mufti met with al-Banab and the Muslim Brotherhood firebrand, Saeed Mouhoub. This man Mouhoub became a leader of terrorists. He was hanged by the Egyptian government in 1966. German Nazis held positions as the leader of the secret police, office of propaganda, and in the intelligence positions. Assets of millions of dead Jews were stashed in Swiss banks, and much of it controlled by an old friend of the Mufti and Adolf Hitler. François Junot was a longtime supporter of the Nazis and Arab terrorist groups. He kept the Mufti well supplied with funds. He also funded a project started by the Mufti, which was the founding of an organization named Al-Fatah, which would become the Palestinian Liberation Organization. Another evil seed general planted was the founding of the bank known as Dakar Bank, translated as Fear of God Bank. This bank was eventually shut down for funding Al-Qaeda. These are some of the indisputable facts connecting Nazi intelligence and money with violent jihad. Egypt, a break was occurring between fundamentalists and the secular government. Many of the Muslim Brotherhood were forced to flee to a welcoming Saudi Arabia, so Nazis went along with them. Saudi Arabia, a country with legalized slavery until 1962, was the home of the traditionalist Wahhabi sect. The support of Wahhabism for the Muslim Brotherhood provided fertile ground for Al-Qaeda. Between 1947 and the Mufti's death in 1974, 800,000 Jews, many of whose ancestors had lived in the Arab world for thousands of years, were thrown out of their homes and forced to leave. All their belongings and businesses were stolen by their Arab neighbors. Driven out of their ancestral homeland, most resettled, owning nothing, in Israel and America. So far, the Mufti's long-range plan was right on track. When the Mufti started Al-Fatah, he appointed his so-called nephew, 
a member of the Husseini clan, to be its leader. This disciple called himself Yasser Arafat. Yasser Arafat has referred to the Mufti as his hero and has taunted the West for never being able to punish this accused Nazi. Referring to the Mufti, Arafat is quoted as saying, I was one of his troops. The spirit of anti-Semitism lives on in Palestine today. It is not shameful to respect the Nazis or the Mufti among much of the Arab population. The plan continues. The time will come, by Allah's will, when their property will be destroyed and their children will be exterminated, and no Jew or Zionist will be left on the face of the earth. that there never be peace with Israel. Hamas follows this credo. Every jihadist, from Ahmed Ejah to bin Laden, repeats the same credo that the Mufti began. The anti-Semitic credo, calling for Jewish genocide, is a rallying cry, attempting to unite and hate those who cannot agree on much else. train left the German railway station and headed for the Middle East. The enemy costume has changed. The message is the same. The scapegoat, the same. Fundamental change cannot occur until the vicious and violent anti-Semitic message of the Mufti becomes illegal to teach the children of the Middle East. Teaching hate and Nazism in Germany is illegal. It must also be stopped in the Arab world by those who live there and are dedicated to peace and prosperity for all. As long as glorifying Hitler and the Mufti has no stigma, genocidal anti-Semitism will grow.
Yeah, I think um, one reason is that uh, forgetting what Hussaini did in World, War, in World War II should be understood as part of the conservative climate of Cold War anti-communism of the early 1950s. Uh, and that the way that we think about uh, the forgetting of Nazi war crimes in Europe after the Second World War is helpful in thinking about why there was less attention paid to Husseini uh, in the Middle East. But as I said this morning, Husseini got the third world bonus. And uh, at, at the, the watchword of the 50s was decolonization, nationalism, self-determination. And he then appeared as part of this larger movement with Sukarno and Nasser and, and, uh, and to, to describe him then as an ex-Nazi just didn't compute. It didn't fit into this larger story of decolonization. Um, uh, and then there was the oil, uh, the desire of the United States to have good relations with the Arab states. Uh, uh, so I think those are, those are uh, some of the reasons. I have a question, though, that I wanted to pose about the film and about the panel, and it's a methodological issue. Um, which is, if, I, if my colleagues in the history department at the University of Maryland were to listen to this panel this afternoon, that is, my colleagues at the University of Maryland who know something about the Middle East, they would say, like her, this is all Israeli propaganda. You don't read Arabic. You don't know the history of Islam. You don't know the history of the Middle East. You care about Jews. You care about anti-Semitism. And so for 10 years, you've read some books about the subject, and now you want to tell us about it. Well, you don't know what you're talking about, and we're not interested in hearing anything you say. That's what they're saying. Um, so, Professor Lashley, I'm asking you, um, what can be done of a serious scholarly nature about these issues by those of us who don't read Arabic or Farsi, or for that matter, have command, a good command of uh, Hebrew reading? Uh, is there anything of a scholarly nature? I mean, Professor Rose obviously has done you know, excellent work, and, and uh, all these are interesting presentations. But I think that that is a, a serious question in years to come. Jews have never been known as bad scholars. Whatever else people wanted to say about us, we were the first, we were the best scholars. We had the best command of all the languages. And now we find ourselves in a dilemma, because there's, a, there's an issue that we all care passionately about, and we don't have the scholar, all the scholarly tools we need to address it. And I wonder if you could say something about that. I'm the chair, so I really shouldn't say anything. But I'm about to say it. I heard a chair not saying well. I'm about to say something which is very self-serving. I suggest you go out and read my last three books, <laughs> which are addressed specifically to these problems. Uh, a book which I wrote with Elon Trone called uh, uh, Jews and, uh, and Muslims uh, in Arab lands, haunted by past real and imagined, which is a, a unconvention, unconventional history of the Arab-Israel problem, insofar as it's not a narrative of, of the Arab-Israel problem. God knows there are enough narratives, many of them filled with all sorts of erroneous facts, but uh, an attempt to look at the deep structures of the, of the Arab-Israel problem, based on an intimate knowledge, obviously, with uh, 
with Islamic sources and based on the assumption that uh, if you want to understand the modern Middle East, you have to understand that it doesn't begin with Napoleon's invasion of, uh, of Egypt in 1798, that there is a, a, a culture that has taken root in the Middle East that goes on for 1,300 years. And this gentleman here was absolutely correct in his assessment because their way of understanding history is very different from the way your colleagues in the history of the University of Maryland understand history. You see history as a, a series of, of uh, discrete events taking place in time and place. Uh, in response to particular events of the moment. Uh, we may look at history in terms of long delay, that is to say, to, to look at history as long developing events, but we don't see history uh, in uh, the Islamic world as a, a, a kind of history that has discrete moments, that the description of history from the beginnings of Arabic historiography are the same, whether you're dealing with a particular moment or another moment of Islamic history. Even the conversations Features tend to be the same conversations that take place time and time. Let me recast the question. So, so yeah, just very briefly, I don't want to monopolize the conversation, and I would like to know what Paul Rose thinks. What is the status of scholarly work on these issues by those of us who don't read Arabic and don't read uh, Farsi? That's that is that's the question. It's going to get thrown in our face again and again. The status is deplorable, but. You may also argue that the status of scholarship by people who read Arabic is equally deplorable. Yeah. <laughs> it would be worse so because it has the patina of being really legitimate, in a sense. Uh, it's filled with all sorts of misconceptions. It's filled with a, a lack of understanding. It's tendentiously driven for the, for the most part. And, and the people who get reviewed in the New York Review of Books and who review in the New York Review of Books are precisely the people who add to this kind of attendance. There was a time when the New York Review of Books employed Bernard Lewis and Joel Bagash to review their books on the Middle East. Today you have Elise Ruffin uh, reviewing books. You have Mali and Aga uh, reviewing books. Uh, the late Tony Judd, who may have been a, a superlative historian of contemporary Europe, I mean, that for others to decide nothing about the Middle East, essentially, and who also has a, a self-promoted biography of his own, as I learned recently from having been in London. Uh, various things that he said about his own life and career. I happened to meet his friends in London who were with him and designed this movement at that time. As they say, there, was, there are no bears and there's no forest there, in a sense. All, all an invention of time. So, you know, the, the state of Near Eastern scholarship as regards the modern history of the year, in particular, the Arabian is absolutely deplorable whether you read Arabic or don't read Arabic. Now, the real problem comes not only from the inability to to do the Arabic problem, you also have to read Hebrew. It cannot be done simply by reading Arabic. There is not a single Arab scholar who has gone to the effort to learn modern Hebrew in an attempt to understand or even go through various archival materials to understand what's going on. Rashid Khalidi, who has the reputation of being, uh, for example, the, the preeminent historian of the modern Middle East in this country, self-promoted to the Bible. Columbia University Press that publishes his books, uh, has never bothered to learn modern Hebrew, and has, despite his accusations that Israeli scholars don't look at archival materials, never bothered to look at the archives when he wrote his book on Palestinian nationalism. Now, I'd be very interested, now that the book has come out in a, in a new edition, to see whether the new edition really contains a new introduction that, that brings it up to contemporary times, or whether he really went back and, and looked at archival. I don't think he did. 
If you compare his book, for example, on Palestinian nationalism, which is about this thin, uh, which really stops in around 1920, so 1936, actually, with the Great Revolt. You compare his book to Shuka Palat's two great volumes written by an Israeli scholar on the emergence of Palestinian nationalism. Porat has about 800 and some odd pages. Khalidi uh, has about 200 and some odd pages. Porat went through 26 distinctive archives. Khalidi went through two archives and number of letters and the like. You see the difference between serious scholarship on the one hand and tendentiously driven drivel on the other hand. You won't, you won't see that. I mean, there, there are no such judgments can be made because the reviewers, the institutions that do the reviewing, it's all in the hands of people who don't know anything. I mean, more specifically, I mean, if you look at it, but Saeed's material. But he's not a specialist on, on, on the Middle East. I mean, Saeed, your colleagues may even find criticism of Saeed. They can't find criticism of his Russian comedy because he allegedly is a, as a historian. He's a serious historian. And I just want to say that, that you know, the, the, the label Orientalism is applied to any of Israeli historians who read Arabic. Is it in the Yilbert pattern? This is not a whole approach. I mean, some of, I want to say he comes straight from the Kulp in the 1950s, where he talks about the Orientals, meaning the, the Arab followers who are taught by Western Jewish Oriental scholars. But that's the real origin of Orientalism in Saeed's book. I don't know if it's, it's Saeed didn't know Arabic for one. Uh, he spoke Kitchen Arabic. I mean, I heard him speak Kitchen Arabic, but he couldn't read a text, uh, really. And uh, you know, he was a professor of comparative literature who, who, who quoted from Goethe. And, and anybody who can, who can say, go to the Orient, go to Sister Occident, means God is in the Orient and God is in the Occident, uh, clearly hasn't taken second year German. I mean, to see something as, 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 as glaring as that or other kinds of areas, I mean, the scholarship is so terribly erratic. It's beyond imagination. But it doesn't, it doesn't carry because no one will get off it. Well, people have actually said this, including people who are sympathetic with its political views. Uh, but it doesn't seem to create or didn't create any time. You can just answer this question that you have. The problem is that the Arabic is very difficult. But at the same time, the mindset, this is the mindset of even non Muslim American scholars. Middle East, it's primitive, it accepts the most basic truisms and narratives, I mean, things you wouldn't believe in, to be believed by anyone. I mean, that, that's the whole historiographical conceptual framework. It's really crude and primitive, whereas the is really primitive, it's much more positivistic in that sense. It's, it's much more valid, but it's not the whole story yet. So you really do need to, too, but you also need English and German progress. Look, I mean, you can understand, I think, let me give you an analogy of the German. You could only, anyone in this room who doesn't read German could, if they read a few interesting books about Hitler and Germany, could begin to understand the other side of German mentality without knowing German. And I think it is possible without Arabic, despite what the colleagues like to say. But you know, these this is all professional turf garden and so forth. And the point is, their the historiographical conception is, is no better or worse than anyone who doesn't read Arabic. So it's a waste what, what, is, what is the best-selling book for anyone who wants to know anything about Islam? Who is the one author? Karen Armstrong. Total ignorance. Karen Armstrong is the best. You, if war breaks out tomorrow in the Middle East, there will be a best. Barnes and Noble. 
and they only investigate borders. They only investigate every conceivable bookstore with about 50 copies of Anna Armstrong's books, and these books will be good. No, she's well, an apologist for murder, by the way. Well, if you look into the treatment of the lovely little story about uh, Karen Armstrong. I might wine when I went to London. I had dinner with the former director of MI5 uh, shortly after my and uh, I said, well, how are we going to cope with this? It's, it's very different from Irish terrorism. And I said, yes, well, what are you doing? He said, well, we're all reading. Said, what are you reading? He said, well, I'm reading Karen Armstrong's Life of the Prophet. And I turned around to someone on the other side and said, Christ, that's a shitty book. You know, if MI5 is relying on Karen Armstrong, <laughs> insight. It's fighting this battle in academia, which is very important, and breaking ground in academia, which has its own parameters and values. But who really influences public opinion? Who influences public policy? It's the voters. You know, are my senators going to see this? I'd rather have them see this than read Karen Armstrong. Are they going to say, do you read Arabic, David? You know, no. So there's like a triple down thing, and I think that it's important that we get access and the people who see that mainstream stuff, they really don't. There's another aspect, which I think both Jeffrey Burke and Matthias Constant referred to, which is that we are only now beginning to see the archives open up, certainly uh, the American and British archives. Uh, even the Israeli archives. And there are plenty of researchers out there and scholars who are now beginning to work. If one thinks of Ian Johnson, who, 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 who's not an academic, he's a journalist, a world-class journalist. And his book, Most in Munich, really is a revelation. If you read that together with Professor Hurst's book, Pius's book, you read Basan Tibi's work, you begin to see opening up of the whole story, and there will be others. We don't necessarily have to rely on one person who's going to be fluent in Farsi, Arabic, German, and Debrit to you know, as the saviour. There are going to be a whole selection of people, all um, expert in small areas, who will begin to look into the archives. And slowly but surely, the story will come out. We just have to encourage it. I'll tell you what the problem is. The problem is that the American Academy is a self-policing institution. And every constituency is only responsible for its own turf. And the end result of this is that you only have to answer to the regular orthodoxies of what, what is good for a particular discipline in order to, to get a job and get promotion and get tenure in life. Nobody in a department of political science, well, I hope I'm not offending any political scientists here, but no one in a department of political science will ask whether somebody has adequately correct and correctly quoted sources in Arabic or in Persian or something to that effect. I mean, they're only interested whether the method somehow is, 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 is congruent with the traditional methods of, of political science. And the end result is as long as these individual constituencies hire their own people, they're going to get the kinds of results that we have. we have a question. One last The chairman's out of control. So I'd like to make one comment about your question, Jeffrey's point, which is the resistance to hearing this. I mean, it seems to me that one of the great under-reported stories of the last decade 
has been precisely this kind of genocidal incitement in the Muslim and particularly in the Palestinian world. And I think that one reason is that people really don't want to know how bad it is. Uh, and journalists don't want to tell us how bad it is because they're afraid we'll become right wing instead of, you know, vote for or compromise solutions and stuff. My question to you is, I know it might add another minute to your 20 minutes, but how come you didn't deal with the Mufti's role in making a two-state solution in 47 impossible? I have, I won't exaggerate, I've got five times more material. Right, I understand, but I, I have still, to get this in, in 20 minutes. But that's still, and in so, terms of one of his poisonous uh, oh, contributions. There's so many interesting things okay. in this story. It's just, a, you know, it's, it's incredible. There's all the book that just came out of his argument back about what a good guy he was. He didn't king, king, he didn't kill King Abdul, you know, things like that. So are we, uh, you can continue this discussion, but I have to go to the paper. <laughs> <laughs>